Amen. So, uh, I hope this word today is encouraging to you, because I'm going to try to encourage you before I leave this place. All right? Um, you guys keep us in your prayer, uh, but we're going to be moving along uh, in this series here. It is not about me. And if you are a first-time visitor, and uh, you, um, or if you are visit- or you, if you're a member here, you may already know that this is the theme of the year. It is not about me. This is an effort to take the attention, take the spotlight and the limelight off of us and put it where it needs to be, on God. Last week we talked about, Pastor Jamal talked about, it's not about us, but about the community and about God's work specifically in the community. The fact that we are the gospel made visible. That way when the community looks at us, they see the gospel. When the community looks at us, they see God's grace. And so we ought to be involved in praying for our city and praying that God changes the hearts of the people and praying for the welfare of the city. But now we will be talking about the church and specifically the kingdom of heaven and how it relates to the church. So it is not about me, it is not about you, but it's about God's kingdom. And we're going to be looking at how it specifically deals with with the church and relates to the church. Amen? Can we do that this morning? Let me pray for us and we'll go ahead and dive in. Gracious God, Lord, we're so thankful, God, for your steadfast love, for your faithfulness, God. Lord, even when we don't know what's going on, even, Lord, when we can't properly plan out tomorrow, Lord, because you said that don't say what you will do tomorrow and next week, You say, Lord willing, because we are not sovereign. And Lord, you see all. You are omniscient. And Lord, we're so thankful, God, that we serve a God who is omniscient, who does see all. But Lord, we pray, God, that you will give us the grace, that you will give us faith, God, that you will give us the might, God, to be able to endure the plans that you have for us, God, to be able to stand up in faith and rejoice, And Lord, to also give us encouragement, Lord, when we are saddened, God. But Lord, while our hearts are heavy, I pray, Lord, that you also use this time to speak to us, Lord, in regards to your word. Lord, I pray, God, that you will use me in this place. Take me out of the equation, God, and use your word. We pray this in the name of Christ. Amen. We're going to be coming from the book, the Gospel of Matthew. And we're going to be uh, preaching, I'm going to be preaching the entire chapter, not exhaustively, but in its entirety, uh, which is to say that uh, I'm going to be preaching several texts in the uh, the 13th chapter here. And so please uh, stand in honor of our tradition to honor God's word as we read. Matthew, the 13th chapter. And since we're not going to read the entire chapter in order to uh, save some time here, uh, please, well, when you get home today, tomorrow, next week, read um, the entire chapter. But I'll let you know what we're going to be reading, and we're going to just read along, okay? When you got it, say Amen. 
That same day, Jesus went out of the house and sat beside the sea. And great crowds gathered about him so that he got into a boat and sat down. And the whole crowd stood on the beach. So as I read on and I set the scene here, think about that. Jesus is sitting down on a boat. There's a shore right there and people are standing around listening to Jesus. And he told them many things in parables, saying, A sower went out to sow, and as he sowed, some seeds fell along the path, and the birds came and devoured them. Other seeds fell on rocky ground where they did not have much soil, and immediately they sprang up, since they had no depth of soil. But when the sun rose, they were scorched, and since they had no root, they withered away. Other seeds fell among thorns, and the thorns grew up and choked them. Other seeds fell on good soil and produced grain, some a hundredfold, some sixty, some thirty. He who has ears, let him hear. Verse 24. He put another parable before them, saying, The kingdom of heaven may be compared to a man who sowed good seed in his field. But while his men were sleeping, his enemy came and sowed weeds among the wheat and went away. So... When the, plant, the plants came up and bore grain, then the weeds appeared also. And the servants of the master of the house came and said to him, Master, did you not sow good seed in your field? How then does it have weeds? He said to them, Any, excuse me, An enemy has done this. So the servants said to him, Then do you want us to go and gather them? But he said, No, lest in gathering the weeds you root up the wheat along with them. Let both grow together into the harvest, and at Harvest time, I will tell the reapers, gather the weeds first and bind them in bundles to be burned, but gather the wheat into my barn. Then we go to verse 44, excuse me, to verse 31. He put another parable before them, saying, The kingdom of heaven is like a grain of mustard seed that a man took and sowed in his field. It is the smallest of all seeds, but when it has grown, it is larger than all the garden plants and becomes a tree so that the birds of the air come and make nests in its branches. 33, he told them another parable. The kingdom of heaven is like leaven that a woman took and hid in three measures of flour till it was all leavened. Verse 44, the kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field which a man found and covered up. Then in his joy he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. Verse 45, Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant in search of fine pearls, who on finding one pearl of great value went and sold all that he had and bought it. And then the final parable here. Again, 47. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a net that was thrown into the sea and gathered fish of every kind. When it was full, men drew it ashore and sat down and sorted the good, the good into containers, but threw away the bad. So it will be at the close of the age. The angels will come out and separate the evil from the righteous and throw them into the fiery furnace. In that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Let him who has ears, let them hear. You may be seated. So, as I said earlier, that this is going to be um, a discussion about the church but specifically in looking at the kingdom of heaven and how it directly relates to the church and its implications for the church. 
This idea of kingdom has been something that is, it, wasn't certainly, it certainly wasn't new during the time that Jesus was preaching about it. This is something that has existed since the creation of man, God having a kingdom for himself. God setting a people apart for himself that they may be his representative in the world. And so you certainly see this with Adam, the Adam, the first man. God sets him, God endows him with things that, is, uh, that would look like him that the world may know that I am here and here's my physical representation. You certainly see this in the kingdom of Israel, and certainly the Israelites hearing this would have, would have heard very, uh, a very specific uh, message, but something that Jesus didn't necessarily intend. When Jesus talks about kingdom, the thing that they're thinking about is, once again, Jesus or someone is going to lead us into political triumph. But this is something uh, that they had mistaken, and Jesus has something far more meaningful in mind here. But I want to press this point about kingdom because it has something to do, it's something that is fundamental to the identity of the person, of Christians, of the churchgoer. But the churchgoer who is in fact saved, which we'll go over that in more detail today. Because the kingdom, as I said, was, is this representation of God, but in essence, this is what it means to be mankind. For you to be a viceroy for God. And for a thing to be anything other than what it was purposed to be is a thing that lives with a false purpose, which is no purpose at all. So let me give you a little background of what's going on, on uh, up till this point. Uh, earlier in the book of Matthew, Jesus has recently uh, replaced John the Baptist. John the Baptist was the, uh, was the way maker for Jesus. John the Baptist came out and said that, make way the path. The kingdom of God is at hand, and John the Baptist is doing this for Jesus. And so Jesus steps in and says that, okay, I'm here, the kingdom of heaven is at hand, and I am here to usher that kingdom in. Now, a part of this, uh, a part of this message that Jesus is bringing in, and part of his ministry is that Jesus is beginning to attract a lot of attention, both positive and negative. Negative, because people were starting to have a problem with who Jesus was claiming himself to be. And certainly positive because people seen the many or witnessed the many things that Jesus was doing. And they said, surely this is a man of God. But here's a unique thing about chapter 13. That up until this point, Jesus was speaking and preaching with striking clarity. Earlier on, you can see that Jesus making clear statements like in Matthew 7, 5. Jesus is talking to Pharisees, and he says, you hypocrite, first take the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. That's a pretty clear and direct statement, isn't it? Matthew eleven twenty eight. Jesus says, come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Jesus proclaiming to people that I have rest in myself. You can come to me if you have heavy hearts. Come to me. And I will give you rest. This is a pretty clear statement. And Jesus is saying that this is who I am. But chapter 13, Jesus begins to speak in a more mysterious way, in a way that people do not understand as clearly. He begins to speak in something that we all have heard in parables. And so parables, we may sometimes think that parables are spoken in order to speak the down-to-earth language. 
to, in order to contextualize and speak in the voice of the people, but that's not true because they didn't understand. And so Jesus is starting to using parables as, as a vehicle to usher in his kingdom, but also a part of his campaign because Jesus was on a campaign, but Jesus was not on a campaign for people to vote for him. Jesus is not a, a political figure trying to solicit votes for him. Jesus is a God-man trying to show the world that he's here to save. But this campaign and this kingdom, before we go into it just a little bit more, it would be good to establish that this kingdom is like, is like any other kingdom in the world. This kingdom, it, it, it's not like the kingdoms that we see now in the world. And the most relevant thing that we can probably think about is the current political movement going on right now. You have the Republicans looking for their next nominee to, fight, uh, to go against Obama. But this cannot be associated with this because it doesn't matter whether or not you are a Republican or a Democrat. It has a, it, it has a, a striking irrelevancy to the kingdom of God. It has nothing to do with the kingdom of God. It doesn't matter whether Santorum or Romney or Greenwich or uh, Obama. It doesn't matter who's occupying 1600 Pennsylvania. The kingdom of God is something fundamentally different. And kingdoms of the world cannot usher it in. And kingdom of, kingdoms of the world cannot stop it. You heard the text earlier today, Hebrews 12, 27 and 28, or 25 through 28. The writer of Hebrews says that yes, one, yet once more indicated the removal of things that are shaken. That is, things that have been made in order that the things that cannot be shaken may remain. Therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. It is, uh, it is important that we understand that, that the kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of God, is a kingdom that cannot be shaken. The things that are made with hands are the things that are shakable. Every four years, the, the Democratic Party, that is a shakable kingdom. Every four years, the Republican Party, that is a shakable kingdom. America is a, a shakable kingdom. Rome, it was a shakable kingdom. And at the peak of their power, they did not believe themselves to be a shakable kingdom, but they thought themselves to be an unshakable kingdom. Every institution in this world, apart from that which God has made himself, is a shakable kingdom. And so it behooves us to make sure that we are part of a kingdom that is unshakable because the right of Hebrews, it says here that there will become a, there will come a time that there will be a, a removal of those things that are shakable. Those things that you can walk up to and just kind of shake it. And if it falls apart, you know that that thing is not a thing that you can put your trust in. And I'm here to bear witness that everything in the world apart from Christ, apart from God, they are shakable things. And let me bring that home just a little bit more. There are shakable things even in our own lives. Those things that we are placing our confidence in. Those things that we're placing our hopes in. Those things are shakable if they are apart from God. But Christ in this campaign is preaching a kingdom that will, that will stand forever and ever but something that's going to be also important for us as we go dive into Matthew 13 here is just to understand a little bit of the structure as well. There are seven parables in this, in, in this chapter here. Seven parables. And seven parables, they all kind of fall up under three subheadings. One being Jesus is the great sore. The other being uh, Jesus, uh, Jesus' secret 
or his secret message or this secret idea, this idea of a secret message belonging to the kingdom. And also Jesus, the separator. All of the parables fit up under those categories. And so without further ado, let's go ahead and jump into the text here. Jesus, the great sword. Jesus, the great sword. And so in in chapter 13 there, the first uh, parable given here is that Jesus is a sword. In verse 3, it says, And he told them many things in parables, saying, A sword went out to sow, and as he sowed, some seeds fell along the path, and the birds came and devoured them. Other seeds fell on rocky ground where they did did not have much soil, and immediately they, excuse me, and immediately... Uh, they sprang up since they had no depth of soil. But when the sun rose, they were scorched. And since they had no root, they withered away. Other seeds fell among thorns, and the thorns grew up and choked them. Other seeds fell on good soil and produced grain, some a hundredfold, some sixty, some thirty. He who has ears, let him hear. And so Jesus then uh, explains in uh, verse 18 through 23 exactly what, uh, this, uh, what this parable is all about. But we're just going to jump in to see what this is all about. Of course, as I said before, uh, Jesus is the sower in this particular situation. And we'll see uh, why uh, for later on in uh, verse 36. But the first, but this is really about how people respond to the message of the kingdom. In verses 18 through 23, Matthew identifies this as the message of the kingdom. The seed is the message of the kingdom. It is the gospel, the uangalion, as the Greeks would say. It is the good news, the God spell. It is the good news. But in order to understand good news, we have to understand bad news because what is good news without the contrast of bad news? It's good news because we were all in a bad situation. And and, and often when the gospel is being presented, people do not understand themselves to be in a bad situation. Many people are clueless of the fact that they're in a bad situation. It's like a man who is in a house, and the house is burning, and their neighbor comes by and says, Hey, your house is burning! The man says, My house is not burning. I'm fine. I think everything's fine. I don't see any fire. It says, Man, your, man, your clothes are on fire. He says, No, I think I'm fine. I don't see any fire. This is the, the, con- this is the idea of, of, of the gospel of people who do not understand that they're in a bad situation. The gospel says that there is need of salvation. There is need for it, and something had to be done in order to give you salvation, in order to provide salvation for me as well as you. A part of the gospel story here is that is an understanding our first parents, Adam and Eve. These are not fairy tales. This is biblical doctrine. This is the inerrant word of God. Adam and Eve, our first parents, sinned against God. And because they sinned against God, everyone that comes after them inherits, inherits excuse me, sin. It's just like my daughter. When I look at my daughter, I see me. When I look at my daughter, I see my wife. Because the cells have divided and the cells replicate that of the parent. The same thing happens with, the, with, with sin. I now bear the sin of my parent, Adam and Eve. In the same way that God dealt with them, God had to judge sin. God cast them from the Garden of Eden in the same way we are born cast away from God. We are born separated from God. I think that's a problem. I think that's a problem. Why? 
Because God recognizes there's a problem. But why? Because when we are born into this world, we are separated from God and we stand in need of a, sa- of a Savior that can connect us to God because we're enabled to do it ourselves. And so God seeing this, God said that I love the world so much that I gave my, begotten, my only begotten son that whosoever believes in him shall have everlasting life and shall not perish. That is the gospel. But a part of the gospel message is not only this, this message of hope that I was born cast away from God, I was born a sinner, even though I may not think that I'm that bad, bad of a person, I was born a sinner. In God's eyes, you are, because you're separated from him. But God has provided the remedy, Jesus Christ is that remedy, But it's not just an understanding of that. Something has to happen in order for a person to be what the gospel here is talking about, the kingdom of God, and that is, there is something that needs to happen in order for them to gain salvation. The person looks at this message of hope. The person says that, okay, Lord, a response is needed, not just an appreciation or agreeing to. And so what do they say then? They say that, Lord, okay, I want to repent of my sin. That means that I was going this way, and then this was hostile against you, and I did not see my need for you. But now, Lord, what I will do is I will turn my life toward you, Lord. And the Spirit comes within you, and then he awakens awakens the person's heart that they may see their need to do that. The gospel is a message of hope, but a response is needed. And so they believe, so the gospel to the person who is gospel minded, the person who has been, been uh, uh, captivated by the gospel is the person that says that, Lord, I believe that you came. I believe that you died. I believe on the third day you rose. I believe that you, that you walked with the disciples and you walked with people and you showed yourself to many for 40 days. I believe that you ascended on high. I believe that you sent your spirit back and I believe that you're coming back again. That is the person who believes the gospel. And if you find yourself in here this morning right now as a person that does not agree with that, does not, uh, even dis- who disagrees with even a part of that. No, there's not a, a, an accepting of one part and a denial of the other. If you find yourself this morning having t- a hard time believing any of those parts, then you have great reason. You have great reason to question whether or not you are saved. Now, now, this is not to say that a person, as, that, that a person cannot muscle, uh, muster strength to believe. Uh, this, is to say, uh, this is to say that sometimes people may have problems or troubles with trusting that this happens. Trusting that a man rose from the dead. Now, salvation, we'll see later on, that salvation is something that has to be revealed. It's something that has to happen, that God has to initiate, that God has to do that we won't ever come to the conclusion that we need God unless God first acts. But, if a person, if you find yourself in here this morning, and you believe that I cannot believe this, then listen to what follows. Listen to what follows, because this is the message of salvation, the message of hope. So, that is the seed. That is the gospel. The, the seed is the gospel message. And so the, so the, the parable is the contrast and to, and to show how people are responding to this message. How people are responding to the message and how positively and negatively. And, said, and he says that the first person is a person who does not understand and who is robbed by Satan. It's the person who hears the message, just like this morning. The person who hears what the gospel is, and that person, they don't understand it. 
They don't get it. They don't understand why any part, anybody with a good senses would believe that a man came to, uh, to earth and rose and, and died and rose. They don't understand it. That's the person that Satan, every single time that person hears the gospel, Satan himself comes and robs that person of that seed and says, nope, you don't need to believe in that. Nope, let me take, you don't need to believe in that. That's the first person. The, first, the second person is the person who happily receives the gospel in, in a sense they're not opposed to it. They say that this is good. Church is good. As a matter of fact, they, they, they find it inspirational. They, they like to be in church. They don't mind. But when trials and tribulations come, they fall away. They fall away, and the Bible says there that they had no root. The third type of person is the person who has too much love for the world. This is to say that when they hear the gospel message, when they hear this message about hope, when they hear that it demands a response and that I have to stop potentially doing a bunch of stuff and, and I have to stop this and stop that, it's just too much for them. They said, no, I, I don't want to do this. I got too much love for, for money. I got too much love for things that, that, that the Bible says that I shouldn't do. But if any of us had any sense, we would see that the gospel is something that liberates us and is freedom. But it's freedom not to sin. It is freedom. Because when you are not saved, the Bible says you are a slave to sin. And in your mind, you don't think that there's any other way but that. As a matter of fact, you, you cannot even imagine yourself being living a life where you don't sin. Now, this is, now all of us sin. The Bible, Paul says that all have fallen short of the glory of God. But we are no longer slaves to sins, those who are in Christ Jesus. And so, it, so the Holy Spirit comes in, quickens the heart, changes the person fundamentally from what they were in the kingdom of Satan into the kingdom of God. But something changes. Your appetite changes. And if you are struggling with that right now, that I cannot do this because I cannot give up stuff. I cannot see myself stopping. stopping. I feel that I'm addicted to sex. I feel that I'm addicted to drugs. I feel that I'm addicted. I am telling you here that the Bible proclaims, and I can say, and I can testify on behalf of my own life, that the Lord will change those appetites. But that's a part of the gospel. But this third person is a person who doesn't see it. It's too much of a stretch for him. And so that gospel root doesn't take root. The gospel doesn't take root there. The next person are those who make up the church. These are the people who hear the word, they believe the word, and the word bears fruit, and they are saved. So that's the gospel, and that's the kingdom of heaven as it pertains to salvation. But let me bring it to the local church. Let me apply it to the local church here. Jesus has now left the people of God to do the sowing. The church, we are the ones who sow. It's the same sowing process with the same seed, but we will face the same responses. Let's not forget that Jesus is the one who is sowing. These are people who are rejecting Jesus himself. We have to change our mindset, or at least in America, we have to change our mindset of what it makes and breaks a successful ministry. There's going to be more people than not who respond negatively to the gospel than good. That is something that is an accepted reality. That is something that Christians have to say, okay, Lord, okay, I accept that. Because they did the same thing to you. They did the same thing to you. But the problem in today's society, 
The problem with today's church, specifically in America, is that when we see this, we are more prone and we are tempted to change the method. And we say that, Lord, Lord, people are not coming. Lord, people are not being saved the way we think they are. Lord, when I just came back from San Francisco, this is a culture that is hostile to the gospel. This is a culture who, that catapults uh, secularism all across the world. This is a culture uh, that is secular in the true sense. That means that they are void of God. And they do not want to have anything to do with Christianity. They do not want to have anything to do with, with this Christian stuff. They say that you guys have been around for 2,000 years. You've had your way. You've had your place. You guys make good contributions to uh, society. But now is now the time of reason. It's now the time of atheism. It was something that we needed, but that's for children. It is a hostile place to the gospel. America is becoming a more hostile place to the gospel. When I walk around, when you, even when you, when you preach the gospel, the atmosphere is so thick and so hostile that you are intimidated to even preach the gospel because people have rendered the gospel irrelevant, haven't they? They say that thank you, but no thank you. You see it more and more in the political systems. You see it more and more in social media. The more, there, is an, there is an assault against Christianity, and if we haven't noticed it, we better wake up. Because we are growing more and more secular. We are growing more and more godless. But to a point where not only will Christianity be, Christianity be something that the world thinks is irrelevant, but Christianity will be, become something that the world, in America specifically, they're going to be offended by it, not just spiritually, but politically. They're going to set things, laws into place to make sure that it's illegal to offend anyone's sentiments. I can't, I can't come and tell you, Deacon Pollard, that you need Jesus and you're a sinner. And without him, you're going to go to hell. That's against the law. Oh, it's coming. But the response of the church is important because I have been disappointed. We all have seen it. The response of churches have been to fix this problem according to man's way of thinking. They have wanted to fix this problem by making the gospel more attractive. They wanted to fix the problem by saying that, okay, don't talk about hell as much. Just talk about how loving Jesus is. They wanted to fix the problem by saying that though Jesus, he doesn't really require much out of you. Don't worry about that. If you would just say, yes, I agree with Jesus. But there's something radically different about what Jesus was saying about himself and, about, uh, and also in, in contrast to what people are saying about Jesus now. Jesus does require a response. The seed cannot change. You change the seed, you are going to change the soil. You're going to change the heart. You're going to change the ground. Everything changes. The seed has to remain the same. That is the gospel message. It has to remain the same. Christianity is not something that's outdated. Christianity is something that has existed since the beginning of the world. Christianity is something that will endure to the end of the world. And this is something that is heavy on my heart because of where we're about to go. It is tempting for me, even as a preacher, to preach in such a way that it would offend less. But I am not an entertainer. Preachers are not entertainers. They are people who are spreading the seed of the gospel, the, message, the gospel message, the message of the kingdom. When I think about this and think about 
churches more and more compromising this. You've got to think that when you got to think about Matthew's words and three chapters later when he talks about the kingdom and what it is to what it is um, to, to accomplish. Matthew sixteen eighteen. You can turn over there. Verses sixteen through eighteen. Jesus just asked the disciples, who do men say that I am? Some say that you are a prophet, he says. Some say that you're Jeremiah. Others say that you are Elijah. Some say that you're John the Baptist. But then Peter responds and says that you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And Christ tells him, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. He says, on this rock, the rock of this, con- this confession, that I am the Christ, I am the Messiah, salvation comes through me. It is upon this rock that I will build my church, and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. You cannot have a church that, that it, it even comes close to this, this, this kingdom that the gates of hell will not prevail against it. You cannot have a church like that. You can't even confess a church like that unless you are building the church on that confession. And so I think I fear for the churches in America in this regards. But Jesus, as we talked about in, in uh, the book of Hebrews there, Jesus promises, though, a kingdom there that won't end, that is unshakable. On a more personal level, before we go to, uh, to the second point here, on a more personal level, the question then becomes, are we sowing seeds? Are we preaching the gospel in the society? Are we preaching the gospel in our, to our families? Are we preaching the gospel in our workplaces? Are we preaching the gospel in this church? And praise God, the gospel does go forth in this church. But the church is the primary vehicle that the Lord is using to spread this gospel, to spread this kingdom, and to advance this kingdom. The second set of parables can be found under the subtitle, I think a helpful subtitle here is Jesus' secret message, this secret message. We talked about before here that unlike uh, popular belief that the parables were not something that was given, that was given in effort to contextualize or to speak in, in layman's terms, uh, because, you know, he's talking about uh, uh, seas and he's talking about dirt and things like that. Well, you would think that a farmer would understand that, that terminology. Certainly he would understand that terminology, but how to apply it, he has no idea. Even so much so, this was, uh, this was mysterious to the disciples that they came to Jesus. And you can see there in uh, 13, uh, verse 10, he says, Then the disciples came and said to him, Why do you speak to them in parables? And Jesus, all this time you've been talking with, with striking clarity. These all this time you've been making these bold statements. These all this time we've been riled up because we see that the kingdom, our kingdom is about to come and they had a different kingdom in mind. But now you begin to speak in these parables. Why? And then Jesus uh, quotes Isaiah here. And then you can look there in, uh, verse, in verse 14. 
He says, indeed, in their case, the prophecy of, of Isaiah is fulfilled that says, you will indeed hear but never understand. You will indeed see but never perceive. For the people's heart has grown dull, and with their ears they can barely hear, and their eyes they have closed. Lest they should see with their eyes and hear with their ears, and understand with their heart, and turn, and I would heal them. So he's quoting Isaiah, and he says that I'm speaking in parables because this is an act of judgment against the people of the earth. It is an act of judgment. And those who understand it are those that I reveal it to. Those who understand it are those who turn to me, and I will heal their hearts. You notice that at the, at, at when Christ is capping off some of these parables, he says that he who has ears, let him hear. This is a very intentional statement because Jesus is saying that if you have an ear, I know you're going to hear me. Jesus knows all that are his. If you have an ear this morning, hear the word of the Lord. And so Jesus says, I'm doing this because it is an act of judgment. The people of Israel for so long had denied the word of God, denied the prophets. And Christ said that this is an act of judgment And those who truly believe in what I say, they will believe. They will hear those that the Father have given ears to. But this secret message, the ideal here, you can find this under uh, the the next three parables. The parable of the mustard seed and leaven. The parable of the hidden treasure. And the parable of the pearl of great value. The parable of the leaven. He says, he put another parable before them saying, The kingdom of heaven is like a grain of mustard seed that a man took and sowed in his field. It is the smallest of all seeds, but when it has grown, it is larger than all the, re- the garden plants and becomes a tree so that the birds of the air come and make nests in the branches. And then he says, he told them another parable. The kingdom of heaven is like leaven that a woman took and hid in three measures of flour till it was all leavened. The idea of the mustard seed that it was the smallest seed to be planted. And then it was this, it, it was a small, uh, small package, but big things came in it. And so it's the idea that the kingdom is something that will affect much, even as when you apply it to salvation, and this is the primary context of this text, it is something that when, you, when the seed is planted in your heart, it changes your heart, and it grows to be this huge thing. But it's something that's mysterious, something that is unexpected from such a small seed. The same thing is seen here, seen here with the leaven. The woman, is, uh, the kingdom of heaven is like a leaven uh, that a woman took and hid in three measures of flour. And it says that till it was all leaven. Three, that is something uh, that uh, it, it, when it grew, it was able to feed about 150 people. Once again, you have this, this idea of being uh, pushed through that the kingdom of God is something that is small initially, or it seemed small. It seemed because you can't see it, but it's something that is actually powerful. It's something that is actually, um, that grows in a mysterious way. But then also you see this with the pearl, the parable of the pearl of great value in verse 45. And then also the the parable of the hidden treasure in verse 44. Let me start there. The kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field which a man found and covered up. 
Then in his joy, he goes and sells all that he has and buys that fill. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant in search of fine pearls, who, on finding one pearl of great value, went and sold all that he had and bought it. This is the mysterious nature of the kingdom of God. He says that it is like a secret, and it's like a secret that is found. That is the kingdom of God. It is something that has to be revealed. You can't do it on your own effort. It is something that needs to be preached before the people. But it's also to show the value of the kingdom of God. What's the local church application here? In other words, the kingdom of God is a treasure of incomparable value that must be revealed. This is to say that without given revelation, there can be no salvation. Without a given revelation, without God revealing himself to people, there can be no salvation. And the church is made up of people who have been saved, who have been given this revelation, this hidden treasure. And they are the primary vehicles, as I said before, whereby other people come to know this hidden revelation, this thing that is not obviously seen, which is why faithful preaching is so important. But God, in understanding this treasure, this idea of a treasure, that the, the kingdom of God is a treasure, God also gives gifts and treasures to the church that more people may get to know this treasure. You see this in Ephesians 4. In the, in the book of Ephesians, you don't have to uh, turn there, but the book of Ephesians, verse 4 and 7 and 8, it says, But grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. It says, therefore, it says, when he ascended on high, he led a host of captives and he gave gifts to men. You can read further down. He says that he gave apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, the teachers to equip the saints for the work of the ministry, for building up the body of Christ until we all attain the unity of faith and the knowledge of the Son of God to mature manhood. God says that he gives gifts to the church for this purpose. And let me just illustrate this one second here. What he does here in this text is he quotes, in uh, Ephesians, he quotes Psalm 68, verse 18. This idea of God leading captives and then giving them as gifts. And so what does that mean? He's quoting 68, but Psalm 68 is quoting something. Psalm 68 is quoting the book of Numbers. I'm a pastor, let me borrow you for a second. He's, he's, quoting, he's, quoting, the, uh, he's quoting Numbers. It's just God taking the Levites... And then remember what God said about the Levites. God said that the Levites are the people that were setting aside for the work of the ministry, specifically as it pertains to worship and sacrifices. He says, I am taking them captive, and then I am giving them back to the people of Israel for their benefit. And so this is the gift that the Lord gives. He takes men for the ministry, takes people for the ministry as gifts, takes them captive. You are captive to the Lord. And then he gives them back to the church as gifts for the sake of their maturity in Christ. The kingdom of heaven is something that applies certainly to our, you can can see its broad implications by looking at salvation, but it has very, very important implications for the local church as well. And God is doing the same thing at the local church level. But this last Subpoint or subheading here, Jesus the separator, is where you can find the remaining of the parables 
uh, they fit neatly up under this, this, um, this subtitle here. Uh, this is one that I uh, want to make sure that I'm responsible in taking time to establish this here. Uh, not too much time here, but we're back in uh, Matthew 13. Verse 24 through 30. This is a lot of information here, but it's important that it's preached in its entirety because it was meant to do that. Uh, It was meant to be communicated in that way. When you got to say amen. Y'all with me? Yeah? All right. Verse 24. The parable of the weeds, he says, he put another parable before them, saying, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a man who sowed good seed in his field. But while his men were sleeping, his enemy came and sowed weeds among the wheat and went away. So when the plants came up and bore grain, then the weeds appeared also. And the servants of the the master of the house came and said to him, master, did you not sow, uh, sow good seed in your field? How then does it have weeds? He said to them, an enemy has done this. So the servant said to him, then do you want us to go to gather them? But he said, no, lest in gathering the weeds you uproot the wheat along with them. Let both grow together until the harvest. And at harvest time, I will tell the reapers, gather the weeds first and bind them in bundles and be, to be burned. But gather the wheat into my barn." This parable, this parable is then explained in verse 36. But Jesus identifies himself as the one who is sowing. The field is the whole entire world. He says that the person coming, uh, who came to sow weed in the, uh, in, the, uh, in the field was Satan himself. And then in, in the, the wheat, of course, is, are those who are Christians Genuine Christians, and then you have the wheat, those who are professing Christians, but not Christians at all. Those who act Christian, those who do the church thing, but have not given their lives to Christ. Those who, when you look in their private lives, their life looks more like something that is, is an apparent contradiction to the word of God. He says that that's the wheat. That's what Satan wants to do. He wants to, he comes to steal, kill, and destroy. But also, he wants to keep people thinking that they're okay when they're really not. Galatians, you don't have to turn over here, but Galatians warns this. Paul warns the Galatians of this, of this idea that they're okay when they're really not. And the ver- in verse, uh, verse 6 here, one who is taught the word must share all good things with the one who teaches. Verse 7, do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever one sows, that will he also reap. For the one who sows is his own, to his own flesh, will from the flesh reap corruption. But the one who sows to the Spirit will from the Spirit reap eternal life. Now this is talking about sowing and reaping and how it has implications on your eternal state. Those who reap to the flesh, they will face destruction in the end, eternally. But Paul says, do not be deceived. This is a very important point. Do not be deceived, church. Do not play this church thing. 
it, it, it is not even, um, I, I would say it's, it's not um, worth playing church just to impress people, just to impress the preacher, just to impress your, the person sitting next to you. Because that which stands as a consequence for our ways that, for our ways the benefit that you may get from a person approving, a person smiling, a person shaking your hand and saying that we're on the same team. But then you have this issue here, uh, quickly here, that you have this issue that the disciples or the, the, um, the servants ask their master, Lord, do you want us to take these weeds out and take them out? Because weeds choke out the plants. And he tells them, no, don't do that. But the thing that I, I do want to talk about here in, in a sense is, does this mean that the church should not address sin or the church should not try to separate weeds in the church? Is this a direct command here for church, the church or pastors or members not to deal with weeds in the church? Well, no, this is not what this is talking about because, the, because in uh, chapter 18, you would have something that, was, that would be total opposite of that. This is talking about the world at large. And Christians are not to go in the world and try to extinguish unsaved people from the world. God would do that in the end, the Bible says here. But there is to be an exercise of church discipline in the church, though. Matthew 18, is, uh, in, uh, 15 through 20, it talks about if your brother sins against you. If he offends you, what do you do? You take witnesses with you. You say, hey, you have offended me. You have done this sin, and it has offended me. And then the Bible says that if he doesn't listen, then you take him before the church. If he doesn't listen to the church, then what does it say? It says that you treat him as a Gentile or a tax, as a tax collector. What does that mean, that you be ugly towards him? No, that's not what that's saying. That's saying that you do not regard him as a brother. You begin to pray for him as if he was an unbeliever. Lord, save that man because he's not saved. Lord, save that woman because she is not saved because she is acting as such. Also in 1 Corinthians, 1 Corinthians 5, dealing with this issue of weeds and, and wheat. 1 Corinthians 5 here uh, deals with a, a man who has been uh, committing sin in the body. And Paul uh, addresses this issue. And Paul says that, wait a minute, this man is committing heinous sin in the church. And you guys have let, allowed this thing just to kind of go and not said anything about it. He says, no, the church is the body of Christ. The church is to be pure. Well, what do we mean, we mean by that? Sin, do not allow sin to defile the church. Sin to go unchecked, specifically for those who call themselves members of the church. Specifically for those who say that we are Christian. You can see this here at the end of the chapter. He says in verse 12, for what have I to do with judging outsiders? He says, we're not here to judge the world. God already does that. He says, it is, is, it, is it not those inside the church whom you are to judge? God judges those outside. Purge the evil person from among you. And then in 2 Corinthians chapter 2, you see that God invites, uh, Paul says, invite this man back because he has repented. And so it's always with the understanding of producing repentance. And so we can see in this parable that it has implications for the church at several levels here. So, 
Let me say this before I stop here. Something regarding the reality of hell and specifically about this text. About this text as a whole. This is my last time I've been able to speak with before you guys in a while, for a while. And um, it, is, it is apparent that this is a heavy day for all of us, I, I believe. Uh, I take that as a sign that we are loved. Um, but let me just testify for a second here. Recently, and, and us, my wife and I praying about what the Lord's direction is for our life. Praying about, Lord, what would you have me to do in ministry? Uh, recently, I, I experienced, um, I think I would call it despair. Despair of ministry where I cried out before the Lord. Why? Because of this idea that, I mean, because of this reality that I live in a society that hates what I am doing. I live in a society that says that you are foolish if you believe this stuff. And preachers are the ones that we say that I won't go to school uh, for this particular purpose. I'm going to go for the purpose of the church. It has become evident that churches are shrinking. It has become evident, uh, and that has implications on the life of the preacher and his family. That means that less people in the church, less financial stability, less, uh, it's, a, a, it's an inability, it produces an inability to, for the church to support families the way that families need to be supported in this society. And so after having several conversations in my mind, Lord, what would you have me to do? Lord, is this message even relevant anymore? I preach it because I have experienced these questions, and I questioned, I questioned it at one time in my heart. And this is sin, of course. This is sin because I'm seeing the way that people are responding to it. But that is the beauty of this chapter, that Jesus is talking about how people will respond to it. People will deny it. They will go to church every single week and hate the message based on the way that they're living. But they will say that, yes, I agree with it. To a person who dedicates their life to the ministry, you understand what type of implications or what type of what that does to the minister. I'm just being real as a minister. But it's encouraging to read the text and read it and soak in it because you see that God says that I wanted you to expect this in the first place. I do believe that we are in what you might have heard as the end times. And I do believe that because the world grows more and more dark. But the beauty of it is, is that God is doing something with his church. God is doing something with his remnant. God is doing something. He's doing a leveling work here. And I believe that God is going to do more work within the next decade or so with leveling out and showing who the real Christians are and remnant in the churches. The more and more we preach the faithful gospel, less and less feel-good things. People are going to go where they want to hear feel-good things, but it's going to be more and more harder for people to sit up under a gospel message that says that, hey, God um, requires a response out of you. I believe that God is going to do that in this country. And I believe that's why more and more restrictions and more and more rights are being taken away from Christians. 
But that has implications for you all in here. That has implications for Forest Baptist Church. That they remain a beacon, that they remain a vehicle by which the gospel message is preached. Faithful preaching. That's why I came to this church. Not because my church was uh, speaking, uh, was preaching unfaithfully. They were preaching very faithfully. But when I came here, I heard a pastor preach a word where he didn't care about what people thought. He preached the Bible. He was not trying to get people riled up. He preached the Bible because he understands that people are lost and they need salvation. That's why he came here. That's the implications it has for Forest Baptist Church. Remain faithful. Remain faithful in, your, in this church advancing the kingdom. Remain faithful in this church advancing the kingdom in your own lives. And if you have not settled this thing in your heart about Christianity, settle it. Today, call out to the Lord. Salvation is real. He who has ears, let him hear. Let me pray for us. Gracious God, well, thank you, Lord, for your word, God. Thank you, Lord, for Matthew 13, God, and showing us what the kingdom of God is, the kingdom of heaven is, and how it pertains to our salvation and how it has implications for the local church as well. Thank you, Lord, for using a broken vessel. Thank you, Lord, for using a person who doesn't have all the answers, Lord, but knows the one who does. And I pray, Lord, that this church is encouraged, but I pray, Lord, that someone in this place is saved today. I also pray, Lord, for the encouragement of this church. I pray, Lord, that you will continue to grow this church, grow this church with gospel believers, Lord. Continue, Lord, to use this church, Lord, to change hearts, God. Continue to show, use this church, Lord, to speak about the reality of hell, Lord. To speak about the reality, Lord, that there is a such place that exists for people who have not lived, who have not lived in a way that glorifies you, who have not accepted Christ as their Lord and Savior. Well, continue to use that, this church, Lord, to advance the kingdom message, Lord. And may they depend wholly and deeply upon you. In the name of Christ, amen.